Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 112, and we're going to talk about all the different ways you can get water from your tank to your sink, or your shower, or your dog bowl, or wherever else you need water. We're also going to talk about 12-volt LED bulbs, the goods, the bads, and times you should never use them, a product review of a Max Air fan, a very specific one, and a place to visit that is Aurora, Nebraska, which is a place that has untold wonders, which we will get into. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Very happy to have you here. I am kind of excited to talk about pumps. I don't know why, but there are so many different ways to get water around your van. And I'm a little bit annoyed with all these expert van builders who just use one method and insist it is, this is the best method. This is the way you should do it. It is the only correct way. Well, folks, let me tell you, there is no correct way for many things in vans because circumstances are completely different. Do you have an unlimited budget and are you technically capable? Well, then maybe this is the best option. Are you on a shoestring budget and just looking for a way to make it work for as little money as possible? Then this is a better option. That's why I'm not a big fan of this concept of best because I don't think it really applies when you're building out a van. I prefer to look at optimal or achievable. Those are things that make more sense to me. But before we jump into my big rant about pumps, I do have a couple of quick pieces of business to take care of. One is that in the past when I've been talking about health insurance in the U.S., I have often mentioned Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act as a good way to get care if you don't have a job that's going to give you health care. There is a caveat, and it's an important one for van life, and that is that many of those plans have geographic restrictions. For example, if you get a plan from Missouri, it might only cover you if you're in Missouri. And while that's not going to be a problem for emergency care, like you break your ankle and have to go to the ER, that's not a problem. Every place is going to take your insurance. You're not going to have any issue there. But any kind of an elective will have to be done in that state. So before you delve into health insurance and sign on the dotted line and fork over like all your money, make sure you understand the geographic restrictions and what they mean for you. That said, let's talk about water and moving it. RVs almost all have the same kind of setup for water and it is the most expensive and most complicated and I think that it maybe isn't the best for a lot of folks especially if you're doing a no build or a minimal build or you have limited space like you're in a minivan I think there are some other options so I'm going to discuss the many options you have for moving water from one place to another from the simplest to the most complex now none of these is the best they all have drawbacks they all have pitfalls, but it's important to know that you have a bunch of options so you can find the best one for your build. So the first is actually the most obvious and one of the most overlooked, and that is gravity. Yes, folks, we all have an unlimited supply of this force known as gravity, and maybe we don't use it enough. This actually is quite simple. If you get a water container with a spigot on it and put it above where you want to use it, water will flow down and voila, you have solved your problem. And this actually works really well. If you have a minimal build or a no build, 
get yourself some kind of water container that has a spigot and mount it on a shelf or hang it from the rafters of your van. However, just get it up high. And that solves almost your entire problem. Now, this being the case, why don't more people do this? Well, there is an inherent problem with this, and that is that you are putting something heavy up high in your van. This raises your center of gravity, and eh, that's not the greatest thing in the world. Although, if you have a five-gallon tank, you're talking about less than 50 pounds, it's not going to be that big of a deal. But it's also a little hard to refill because you've got this heavy thing that's in the air that you have to either take down or run a hose or whatever. But... It is a viable option, and a bunch of old RVs, this is exactly how they did it. They had a water fill up near the roof, and you would fill that up, and then all the water in the entire vehicle was done by gravity. Don't overlook this. Even as a temporary solution for something, this could be really useful. And you can get fancy. If you're worried about the center of gravity thing, just have a way to move the water by hand. You could pick it up and place it on the shelf when you're parked, and then when you're on the road, take it down and put it on the floor in a secure location. That solves that problem. Also, you could rig it up so that you had a big water reservoir on the bottom and a smaller one higher up in the van, and you pump water somehow, either by hand or with an electric pump, up to the upper container. And you might be thinking, well, Jeff, if I've got an electric water pump, why am I doing this? And the answer is that once you're done doing this, you're not using any more power. And if you're in a minimal power situation, you can pump the water up there when it's full bright sunlight and you're getting max solar, or maybe your engine's running, but the water will flow even if your battery is completely dead. Anyway, I don't want to overthink the gravity thing, but definitely don't dismiss it out of hand. It isn't used very often, but it makes a lot of sense. The next step, and this was actually common on those early Winnebago's, you know, that classic Winnebago Brave motorhome shape that we're all familiar with, they actually powered the water in those with air pressure. They had a big tank that had a Schrader valve on it. That's like a bicycle tire valve. And you would just pump that up with air, and that's it. That would provide the pressure for your water. Anyone who's had a really old Volkswagen knows that that air pressure can be used for all kinds of things. Old Volkswagens used to have a hose attached to the spare tire that provided pressure for the windshield washers. <laughs> so the more you washed your windshield, the less air your spare tire had in it. And the idea was, this is from back in the days of full-service gas stations, that every time you got gas, you would pump these things back up. Actually, the gentlemen helping you pump your gas would have done that. <laughs> Those days are long gone. But this is an option. If, for example, you already have an air compressor in your rig for some reason, you absolutely could rig up an air-powered water system. The drawbacks are that you have to keep replacing the air. When the tanks are full, you have to actually replace the air more often because there's less space for the air to compress and store that energy. And the water pressure is going to vary quite a bit depending on how much the pressure is. But Hey, it's an option, and that's what we're talking about here. Another, much more common option is the hand pump. My first RV had a hand pump, and it's built into the faucet usually. There is like a standard RV hand pump faucet, and it has this, just this little crank, and water comes out when you pump it. There's a hose that goes into a tank. There's no pressure involved. Nothing has to be sealed. It's very, very simple. And if you wanted a traditional faucet and sink set up for the least amount of money and you're not thrilled with the gravity idea, this is probably the way to go. 
but it has a big drawback in my opinion, which is that if you use the hand pump, you're using a hand that you have one hand left. <laughs> so imagine you're trying to wash out a glass or, and well, it's a little tricky. So this is a good system to use if water is precious and you don't want to waste any but it ends up not being very convenient. Which leads us to the next thing, which is the foot pump, often called a whale pump. These are common on sailboats. At the base of the cabinet where your sink is, there would be a foot pedal, and you would stomp on that with your foot, and the best ones will pump water on the downstroke and the upstroke, giving you a steady stream of water and having your hands be free. These really don't have that many drawbacks. They're a little bit expensive, and you do have to pump with your foot, but that's not a big deal. The, probably the biggest drawback is that you have this thing sitting on the floor, and while you could rig it up so that you could put it in the cabinet when you weren't using it, that's just kind of not how we think about these things. So, definitely an option. If you're looking for a non-electric pump solution, the foot pump is is probably the best. Then we're back to electric pumps. In my first NV200, I did the simplest electric pump option you can, which is a 12-volt submersible pump. And it's exactly what it sounds like. This is a pump that submerses in your tank. You will have a wire going to the pump to provide power, and then a hose coming out of it for the water. Pretty simple. Doesn't need to be pressurized. You can use any container for water you want. The trick is... This pump will produce water only when it receives power. So a normal bathroom faucet won't work with this unless you also have a switch to turn the pump on. And the pump won't shut off automatically. So you turn the pump on, you turn the faucet, the water comes out, you turn the faucet to close it, you still need to turn the pump off. There's two ways around this. The simplest way, and what I did in my NV200, was I got a special faucet that had an electric switch in it. SureFlow makes these. They're about 55 or 60 bucks, depending on how inflation's going. I have no idea what they cost today. They're $700. I, I don't know. But they were about 50 bucks when I bought it a couple years ago. And it's a very nice faucet, actually. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to this one faucet, because it's extremely versatile. And you can see it demonstrated in my NV200 tour video on my YouTube channel. But uh, you basically just use it like a regular faucet, and when power is needed for the pump, it turns it on, and you can just forget about it. This is an inexpensive, very convenient way to duplicate the faucet action of a home in your van. As for drawbacks, they tend not to be the most powerful pumps. If you need a lot of pressure, like you're going to be washing your van with this or something like that, these are going to be a little weaker. The other part is that the hoses can be a little finicky, and you have to worry about bends because they can get crimps in them and stuff like that. But it's a very simple system. It's very easy to troubleshoot, and I recommend it for minimal builds. I think it's a really good solution. Also, you can just have a pipe that goes to your sink, like maybe some copper that you've bent or fabricated, and then you can use a dimmer switch to control the water flow. It's a little bit weird to think of using a dimmer switch to control water, but it will actually work. So you have that option too. And finally is the most common one, the one you see in almost all RVs, and this is a pressure switch pump. The way these work is they're fairly complicated. They take water from a tank that is not pressurized. The water goes through the pump, and then all the piping after the pump is 
pressurized, meaning it has to be able to withstand pressure even when there's no water flowing. And that pressure tells the switch in the pump to turn off. So basically the pump won't come on unless there's a drop in pressure. And when does that drop in pressure happen? It happens when you open the faucet. So you end up duplicating your home situation entirely. These are best for systems that have hot water. Because if you have a hot water system, you need a lot of pressure because you're going to be sending water to a hot water tank and just to the faucet itself and you want as much excess pressure as possible to keep that water flowing. The drawbacks of these is that they're expensive, they're a little bit more difficult to install because they're much bigger, and you have to be a very good plumber because you can't have any form of leak on that pressurized side. And I've installed a couple of these and they always leak and you end up spending half an hour going through and fixing all the leaks. It's fixable, it's not the end of the world, but you're gonna have leaks, just prepare for it and prepare to go back with some more Teflon tape or some more plumber's dope or whatever. The other drawback of these, and this really bothers some people, is that they make noise. They go and some people don't like that. It doesn't really bother me. More important worry is that if you have a leak somewhere, these things will pump your tank dry and flood the whole van. It's the only one of these solutions that will do that because for all the others, water won't come out unless you either are manually making it come out or you have powered it on. This thing always has power, so that's a little bit of a concern. Because of that, I do recommend that you put a switch that's easy to access so you can turn this thing off, say, while you're driving or while you're leaving the van for a long time. Anyway, that was a listing of all the ways I know to do water in a van. Pick the one that you think is the most achievable and optimal for your uses. Tech Talk. Let's talk about 12-volt LED bulbs. Woo! Actually, I'm pretty excited about these. The, the advent of LED lights has really made van life much more doable. We really no longer have to worry about battery drain for lights which is something that used to be a concern. It was if it was winter and you turned on your lights at five o'clock in the evening, you would actually have to worry about how much draw there was from those incandescent bulbs. Now we really don't think about it, but there are some, some pitfalls. So recently I purchased LED bulbs to replace the cargo lights in the back of my van. They're a bit more expensive than the original bulbs, but they're going to last a whole lot longer and they use a lot less power. So they're a good solution for this. There's a couple of issues though. These tend to be much brighter than the incandescent bulbs that they replace, and that bothers some people. They're too bright. It's, they're blinded when these things come on. That takes us to the second issue, which is that many circuits in cars are such that when you shut the door, the dome light doesn't just go off, it gradually dims. It does a fade. And a lot of these LED lights don't do that. They are on or off, and it's a very sudden, abrupt shift, which is actually just the way all cars used to be in the 70s. Not a big deal, but if this bothers you, you'll be happy to know that newer LEDs, like the ones I just got, have that dimmer circuit built into them. So in the back of my Sprinter 144 2011, there are three dome lights, and I'm putting one of these in each of the dome lights, and now when I open the back doors, it's well lit back there, 
and I do have the dimming function, which is nice. And honestly, there is no doubt that LED is the way to go for this application. Now, where can you get into trouble with LED lights? So you may be thinking, oh, well, okay, if I can replace the dome lights with LED lights, what about the parking lights and the brake lights and the headlights? And then you can get into trouble. Why? Because a lot of vehicles, including my Sprinter, have light bulb detectors in them, meaning that if a light bulb blows out, I get a light on my dashboard. And let me tell you, it's a weird light. The first time it came on, I thought my transmission was gone. I didn't realize it was literally a license plate bulb. Now, these lights can be super annoying because they say, hey, you've got a light bulb out but they don't necessarily tell you where. And if you replace your lights with LED lights, the circuit that detects a light being out may detect that LED as a light that's out. So suddenly, you've got all these wonderful LED lights, but your computer's telling you that you have a light out. Always. Forever. And there's nothing you can do about it. So, because of that, I still recommend incandescent bulbs for vehicles that have them on the outside of the vehicle. As for headlights, and this is, this is a controversial issue, if you buy LED lights for your van, make sure you look at the package and make sure they are on-road legal, and they may not be. Headlights are strongly regulated, have a lot of restrictions, and having LED lights in the van that are for off-road use only, which a lot of them say, they'll be right in the store with all the other light bulbs, same packaging, everything, and then you pick it up and it says off-road use only. You have to read the fine print. Those basically blind oncoming drivers, and they give the police a reason to pull you over if they're looking for one. So I don't recommend those. However... Anytime you can use an LED light, I think you should. I think they're wonderful. And I'll have links in the show notes to the ones I'm using, but of course, that's going to be vehicle-specific. Product review. Max Air fans, the default fan for vans, for whatever reason. Back in the day, it was the fantastic fan, and before that, it was just any old fan that you could find. We didn't really give it a lot of thought. <laughs> However, Max Air makes a whole bunch of different models, so how do you know which one to choose? Well, I chose one that I think is pretty good, and I think it would meet most people's needs for a fairly low price. I got the Max Air... 4500k now if you're googling this max has two x's because they just want to make life difficult so max air 4500k and i think the k just stands for the fact that it's a smoke colored lid from appearances this looks like any old generic rv fan it doesn't have the fancy cover that goes up and stuff and you know what i don't think you need that those things add height to your roof, they take up a lot of real estate, and really, I don't think they're necessary, and they cost you about $100 more. This fan has your standard, regular old lid, like you find on these vents. It's powered, so when you press a button on the remote control, the lid will go and open up. And it has a bunch of other options and features too, so it looks like a regular old fan, but it has all the bells and whistles. It has a thermostat, so you can tell it to turn on the fan when a certain temperature is reached. It has a rain detector, so that if you leave the thing open and go away from the van and it starts to rain, this will detect it and close the vent. And it has a thing that I think is really cool, which is called ceiling fan mode which means that you can run the fan while the lid is closed. And you might be thinking, why would I want to do that? And that's for the same reason you'd use a ceiling fan in a home, is to circulate the air. So if you have a heater running and maybe the ceiling is getting too hot, you can turn on the ceiling fan mode and blow the heat back down. 
All this stuff is great. It's only $240. It's among the cheaper fans, and it fits any of those standard 14-inch square holes that they all take. So look, if you're looking for a ceiling fan, this one is a pretty good compromise on price and features. Really, the only thing it doesn't have is that big shroud that lets you use the fan full blast in the rain. But you can still use this in the rain. You can still crack the lid open and run the fan. And honestly... I don't want that big thing on the roof. I've got enough crap on the roof. I'm happy just having the smaller thing. So there'll be a link in the show notes. This is the Max Air 4500K. And of all the Max Air fans, this one seems to be optimal. Tales from the road. I'm going to tell you about a day that I survived. And I'm very happy that I did. Back about 2015 or so, I worked for Atlas Obscura. I was basically their Illinois representative. And we would put on events and such. And one day we put on an event at the Oriental Institute, which is one of Chicago's best and most overlooked museums. It was basically set up by the guy who was the inspiration for Indiana Jones. Amazing museum, all kinds of artifacts. We hired belly dancers to come in, and we had Middle Eastern music, bars, and buffets. I mean, it was a really big event, and, and it was really popular. It did very well. My job was to basically put on the event. So that morning, I used my wife's car, which was all I had at the time, which was a 2006 Camry, loaded it up with all the stuff we need. And, you know, the, the, the poor car was overloaded. It was sagging. And headed out to the museum to set up. That sounds like the end of the story, but... But no, no, no. My partner from Atlas Obscura flew in, and she was vegan, and I thought, okay, let's go to a vegan place, because, you know, whatever, it's food. So we found this vegan place in Hyde Park, which is where the Oriental Institute is, and parked next to this big van, a little bit of foreshadowing there for, <laughs> for the future of my life, and went inside and ate. And the food was fine, and I got up and found to my dismay that I had spent the entire meal sitting in a puddle of some sort of taco sauce that was all over my pants and my shirt, and I was dressed up like an explorer in khaki with a pith helmet. And I had no way to change, I had nothing to change into, and I basically just had to live with it. So I knew that the rest of the day, including when I'm addressing an audience of several hundred people, I'm going to be wearing and smelling like taco sauce. Okay, I'll do that, that's fine, let's get on with the show. So we head out to the car, and it is in the process of being hooked up to a tow truck. Because you see that big van I parked next to was obscuring the sign that said no parking for the vegan restaurant. Apparently the lot that's attached to the vegan restaurant doesn't belong to them. It belongs to some other business. And they literally have a guy watching all the spots towing people. Okay, now I mentioned that the car was completely overloaded. And I talked to the tow truck guy and I'm really trying not to give him a hard time. He's just doing his job. I get it. And I'm like, look, I understand. I parked illegally. It was a mistake. Let me just pay you and don't tow the car. Why go through the whole process of towing the car? I will pay whatever it's going to cost and then everything will be fine. I'll move on and the world will be good. And he freaks out on me and starts screaming and yelling and saying, you're towed. I have this on video. You're towed, which had nothing to do with anything I was saying. I was already agreeing to that. And he just wouldn't listen to me. So, okay, I maybe they have a policy that they don't want you to give money to the drivers. I can understand that. It's extremely inconvenient. And he hoists up the car, which is overloaded, and I see bad things under there. There are parts that shouldn't be where they are, like dragging under the car. 
So I go under the car and take a picture. And of course, the tow truck driver freaks out even more about that. He's like, oh, you're going to take pictures? Well, then screw you then. I'm not even going to give you a ride. You're on your own. And he leaves with my car, which contains all the stuff to set up the event. Okay, so I am now in Hyde Park with somebody from New York trying to set up an event with no vehicle and all the stuff impounded. So what do you do? (laughs) Well, we got two Ubers. One was for my partner who went to the event to set up as much as she could without the stuff. And the other was for me to chase the tow truck, basically, and go find this tow place to get my car. So I am trying to be in the most cooperative mood possible. It isn't about the money. It isn't about the inconvenience. It's about getting this show done. So I go to the tow truck place and I go up to the line... There's a line for people trying to get their cars back. And the person in front of me is handled and dealt with, and then it's my turn. And they literally pull a shade down between me and the person who is supposed to be giving out the towed cars. Because you see, it is now lunchtime, and they don't do anything for an hour. And what do I do? I stand there in line for an hour in my line of... I was the first in line, the line was forming behind me, and just stare at the glass, where I can see the person through the screen, actually well done with lunch, just doing nothing. (laughs) They're not doing anything. They're like looking at their nails and looking at their phone, and they're basically watching the clock so that they can see when it is time to open the screen again. Like, okay, I am going to be the most patient person that has ever existed. And I wait, and I wait, and finally they open it, and then they say that they don't have my car, and I say that, yes, you do, and they ask me for the VIN number, and I'm like, well, that would be on the car that you have. And then I'm able to actually see the car in the lot, and I point at it, and I say, it's that car, and we go through this whole thing. Finally, they agree that it's my car. I pay them, I think it was $400, and they give me the keys, and I can drive off, except that I can't because the battery's dead. I had suspected this car had an alternator problem for a while, but I hadn't repaired it yet, and yes, this was the day it decided to show itself. So I was able to get a jump from somebody else who had had their car towed. Thank you very much, kind sir. And I headed off down the road, and I heard clunk, 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 clunk. And yeah, something was wrong with the suspension. Whatever they did to tow the vehicle, a piece of the suspension was broken, But I had no choice. I had to go put on the show. So I drove all the way to the Oriental Institute, contacted my partner, we unloaded the car, and then realized we don't have ice. And we need ice. So I go back to my car. The battery is dead again. I run down the street to a store and buy a jump start kit, uh, one of those batteries that you jump start cars with, and use that and start the car up and then go to the supermarket, which was an Aldi, which is a store that I wasn't familiar with at the time, which is a store that doesn't have ice. I, 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 I go back into the car, and the car's dead again, and so is my jumpstart kit, because, hey, it's only good for one until you recharge it. A kind person in the parking lot jumps me, and I go down the street to yet another grocery store. I stupidly leave the car running in downtown Chicago, but it's the only way I can think to get back, get the ice, go back to the event, plug in the charger and then put on the event, dressed in a pith helmet and taco sauce. Now, the event goes pretty well. There were some minor hiccups. My bartender met a girl and ran off with her in the middle. That was interesting. And we ran out of food. Uh, There was all the normal kind of things. But the event went off, and at the end of the day, as we were packing up, I thought, wow, I survived all that. 
And as I'm grabbing the last thing to head out the door, which is the battery pack that I'm going to need to start my car, I find that someone has unplugged it in order to plug in their cell phone. And I'm supposed to drive the founder and president of Atlas Obscura as well as my partner. <sighs> Miraculously, I'm able to start the car with a minimal charge, and I drove them to their hotels, went home, took off my taco sauce-covered pants, sank into the chair, and was just grateful for surviving the day. Some $500 poorer. <laughs> anyway. I like this story because it showed me that I can put up with a whole lot without losing my cool. <laughs> I think that's a very valuable thing. And, uh, and yeah, go check out the Oriental Institute if you're ever in town. Uh, make sure your battery works and that you didn't sit in taco sauce. A place to visit. As many of you know, I am on this Aurora project that is taking me much longer than I ever thought it would, and I am doing videos for every Aurora in the United States. There's 21 or 22, depending on how you count. I have already visited them at least once, but I'm going to visit them again to take better footage and release a video for each one. And I've released several videos at this point, most recently for Aurora, Nebraska. Folks, it's Nebraska, okay? It's in the middle of the country. It's on that part of I-80 where you're just like, oh my God, this will never end. And yet, Aurora, Nebraska is an oasis on this big asphalt desert. Seriously, if you are planning a trip across the country on I-80, plan to stop in Aurora for a number of reasons. First off, they have the best free campground I have ever found in the country. It's not the most scenic or anything like that, but it is an actual campground with actual hookups and they're free. You can stay there for up to four days with water, 30 amps of electric, a flush toilet, a dumpster, and even a dump station. It is a very nice, peaceful, and fully appointed campground, and it's the kind of place you'd happily pay 45 bucks a night for and then write good reviews about, and it's free. It's a thank you to you for visiting Aurora. Okay, so you visit Aurora, so maybe you want to check out what's in Aurora. Well, the first thing you should do is go downtown and see the brick-lined streets. That's right, all the streets are brick, and this massive, amazing courthouse, because it is the county seat. And then you need to go to Susan's Books. That's right, one specific store, Susan's Books, and you go in the door and you say, Hi, um, Built to Go uh, sent me, or use my name, Jeff Wag, she may know that better, or say, Hey, the guy who's visiting all the Auroras said I should come here. And when you do that, you will instantly be invited to take a free book. <laughs> Basically, any book on the shelf you can just take for free with Susan's and my compliments. Why? Well, she gives out free books to everybody. This is an amazing used bookstore and toy store. And if you do this, I highly recommend you also buy a book or buy a toy because they're very well curated and there's really good stuff in there. And Susan is the most fascinating person I have ever met on these trips, and I think you'll agree. Okay, so you have your free book, so then what? Well, then you go to Runza, R-U-N-Z-A, which is a fast food place, and you try a Runza, which is a northern German sandwich made of ground beef beef and sauerkraut in a roll. It's like a kolache. If you're from Texas, you know what I mean? They're interesting and they are like the state food of Nebraska and you can get them in Aurora. After that, 
They have two amazing museums. One of the museums is dedicated to the man who invented the strobe light, who is from Aurora. And in fact, at night, the courthouse lights up with strobe lights, which is kind of this mystery that's unexplained in the town. And they have a science museum dedicated to that that's very interactive. And next door to that is the Plainsman Museum, which is probably the biggest and best historic museum about Midwestern life, specifically about life in Aurora. Lots of vehicles. They have a fake little town with all the old stuff in it and it's it's a great place it's well worth killing a few hours there folks this is in aurora nebraska a place you've probably never heard of but i definitely recommend you check it out it's on your way if you're driving across the country and i just released a youtube video of my visits there it's on my youtube channel i'll have a link and i spend 10 minutes talking about aurora and all the amazing things you can see there so this place to visit is a place i stop at all the time when I'm driving to Colorado because it's about nine hours from Chicago. It's the perfect stopping point. So, hey, maybe you'll see me there. Well, folks, I'm apparently very long-winded this week, so I will stop it here. Thank you very much for listening to this episode 112. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And for those of you curious about how my bed bookcase project's going, it is going very well. I hope to have a video for you soon. At this point, I can say that, yes, you can mount a bell carp to a calyx, and it will work. Man, that sounds kind of dirty. Until next time. Remember the words of St. Francis de Sales. Have patience with all things, but first of all, with yourself. <laughs>